Hello and welcome back to another World Audiobooks. Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in on this special holiday. I hope you're having a wonderful day. Today, I am pleased to be rebroadcasting the Christmas Carol audio drama. This has become a bit of a tradition here at Another World Audiobooks to do a Christmas Carol during this season. I never get tired of it. I love the story. It just it brings back so many good memories, and this audio drama just steals the show, in my humble opinion. If you haven't listened to the audio drama before, you are in for a real treat. If you have listened to it before, you know how awesome it is, and I know that you're going to enjoy it here this year as well. Uh, remember, there is the just audiobook version of it, so if you prefer the audiobook version of A Christmas Carol, you can get that here on the podcast in the backlist as well, or you can go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com, and you can even request a free audiobook, and I'd be happy to send that one to you. I hope you have a wonderful holiday. This is just a nice way for me to rebroadcast this and uh, get a little break here on Christmas, but I love it. It just uh, somewhere you can just get a nice warm drink, cuddle up by the fire, and listen to this masterful retelling of Christmas Carol audio drama. It's just such a wonderful time of year to remember uh, just all the, the gifts that we've been given from those that we love, and most importantly, from Jesus Christ coming down to earth for us. And uh, yeah, there's nothing like this story to, to put you in the Christmas mood. You may notice a couple returning uh, voices. So uh, we've done The Secret Garden from Nikki Wagner, who is the ghost of Christmas past. And we also have done The War of the Worlds from Mr. Sam Collins, Mr. Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge himself. So <laughs> it's really cool to have those voice actors coming back on and then being able to rebroadcast all the amazing work that there's over 20 amazing, generous voice actors who put their time and effort into creating this for uh, the world to share. Uh, Christmas spirit, as well as the give back through Operation Christmas Child. So if you don't remember, that was the whole impetus behind this was to support Operation Christmas Child, which is an amazing organization doing amazing stuff for kids all around the world. And the proceeds from sales of the audiobook version of this audio drama, the full version that you can purchase, uh, links down below, uh, all go to supporting Operation Christmas Child. So if you want to do that, that's a great way to uh, support a wonderful organization doing wonderful stuff here this Christmas season. We'll be getting back to our regularly scheduled book here uh, next week, so stay tuned for that. So now, without further ado, I give you A Christmas Carol, an audio drama. I've endeavored in this ghostly little book to raise the ghost of an idea, which shall not put my readers out of humor with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me. May it haunt their houses pleasantly, and no one wish to lay it. Their faithful friend and servant, Charles Dickens. December 1843. Marley was dead begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know, of my own knowledge, what well, there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself 
to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country is done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat, emphatically, that Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead? Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend, and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut off by the sad event, but that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral, and solemnized it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come from the story I am going to relate. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood, years afterwards, above the warehouse door. Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge Scrooge, and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone. Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching... Grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster, the cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rime was on his head, and on his eyebrows, and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days, and didn't thaw at one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold could have little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. No falling snow was more intent upon its purpose, no pelting rain less open to entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. The heaviest rain, the snow, and hail and sleet could boast of the advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say, with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No. No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was o'clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked, to edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting-house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather foggy withal, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts, and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The city clocks had only just got to three, but it was quite dark already, and it had not been light all day. The candles were flaring in the windows of the neighboring offices, like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. 
The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole, and was so dense without, that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come dropping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought that nature lived hard by and was brewing on a large scale. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who, in a dismal little cell beyond, a sort of tank, was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room, and so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of strong imagination, he failed. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you. Ah, humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, what right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Bah, humbug. Don't be cross, Uncle. What else can I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas, out upon Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older, but not an hour richer. A time for balancing your books and having every item in them for a round dozen of months presented dead against you. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. Uncle. Nephew, keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it, but you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then. Much good may it do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say. Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come around, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that as a good time. A kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year where men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely, and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave, and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good, and I say, God bless it. (laughs) Let me hear another sound from you, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir. I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. Dine with you tomorrow? You'll be seeing me in hell first. But why? Why? Why did you get married? Well, I... because I fell in love. Because you fell in love. Good afternoon. Nay, Uncle, but you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it a reason for not coming now? Good afternoon. I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. 
Why cannot we be friends? Good afternoon. I am sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute. We have never had any quarrel to which I have been a party. But I have made the trial and homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humour to the last. So a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon. And a Happy New Year. Good afternoon. Merry Christmas indeed, the insolent little wretch. A Merry Christmas to you, Bob. How fares your family? And the same to you, my family as well. There's another fellow, my clerk, with 15 shillings a week and a wife and family talking about a Merry Christmas. I'll retire to Bedlam. And a Merry Christmas to you, gentlemen. Please, come in. A might warmer in here, I dare say. <laughs> Good day. Do come in. Mr. Scrooge is right through that door, sirs. Why, thank you. Good day. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. Please allow me to introduce my colleague, Mr. Walpole. A pleasure, sir. And myself, Mr. Poole. Uh, have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years. He died seven years ago this very night. Oh, my sincere condolences for your loss. We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. Liberality. Not interested. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts, sir. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. And the union workhouses, are they still in operation? They are. Still... I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigour, then? Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid, from what you said at first, that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course. I'm very glad to hear it. Hmm. Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude... A few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We chose this time because it is a time, of all others, when want is keenly felt. And abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, they had better do it, and decrease the surplus population. But, good sir, these people are human beings. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon, gentlemen. And good afternoon to you, sir. A Merry Christmas to you. Out!
Can't a man be left to his work? That's all I ask. To be left alone to do what needs done. Meanwhile, the fog and darkness thickened so that people ran about with flaring links, proffering their services to go before horses and carriages and conduct them on their way. The ancient tower of a church, whose gruff old bell was always peeping slyly down at Scrooge out of a gothic window in the wall, became invisible and struck the hours and quarters in the clouds, with tremulous vibrations afterwards as if its teeth were chattering in its frozen head up there. The cold became intense. In the main street at the corner of the court, some laborers were repairing the gas pipes and had lighted a great fire in the brazier, round which a party of ragged men and boys were gathered, warming their hands and winking their eyes before the blaze in rapture. The brightness of the shops, where holly sprigs and berries crackled in the lamp heat of the windows, made pale faces ruddy as they passed. Poulterers and grocers' trades became a splendid joke, a glorious pageant, with which it was next to impossible to believe that such dull principles as bargain and sale had anything to do. Foggier yet, and colder, piercing, searching, biting cold, it stung the eyes and nipped at the nose. The owner of one scant young nose, gnawed and mumbled by the hungry cold as bones are gnawed by dogs, stooped down at Scrooge's keyhole to regale him with a Christmas carol. For rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Saviour was born on Christmas Day to save us all from- Stop that racket! Off with ya! The day ends too soon. Day's over already? Imagine that. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose. If quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient, and it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound. Well, sir. And yet you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. It is only once a year, sir. A poor excuse for picking a man's pockets every 25th of December. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier next morning. Oh, yes, sir. Promise, sir. The office was closed in a twinkling, and the clerk, with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, for he boasted no greatcoat, went down a slide on Cornhill, at the end of a lane of boys, twenty times, in order of its being Christmas Eve, and then ran home to Camden Town, as hard as he could pelt, to play at Blindman's Buff. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms and a lowering pile of buildings up a yard, where it had so little business to be that one could scarcely help fancying it must have run there when it was a young house playing at hide-and-seek with other houses and forgotten the way out again. It was old enough now, and dreary enough, for nobody lived in it but Scrooge, the other rooms being all let out as offices. The yard was so dark that even Scrooge, who knew its every stone, 
was fain to grope with his hands. The fog and frost so hung about the black old gateway of the house that it seemed as if the genius of the weather sat in mournful meditation on the threshold. Now, it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It is also a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence in that place. Also, that Scrooge had as little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the city of London, even including, which is a bold word, the corporation, aldermen, and livery. Let it also be borne in mind that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought on Marley since his last mention of his seven years dead partner that afternoon. And then, let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face. It was not an impenetrable shadow, as the other objects in the yard were, but had a dismal light about it, like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up on its ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stirred, as if by breath or hot air, and though the eyes were wide open, they were perfectly motionless. That, and its livid colour, made it horrible but its horror seemed to be in spite of the face and beyond its control, rather than a part or its own expression. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was a knocker again. Humbug. To say that he was not startled, or that his blood was not conscious of a terrible sensation to which it had been a stranger from infancy, would be untrue. But he put his hand upon the key he had relinquished, turned it sturdily, walked in, and lighted his candle. He did pause, with a moment's irresolution, before he shut the door, and he did look cautiously behind it first, as if he half expected to be terrified with the sight of Marley's pigtail sticking out into the hall. But there was nothing on the back of the door, except the screws and nuts that held the knocker on. Nothing. Oh, of course there's nothing. The sound resounded through the house like thunder. Every room above, and every cask in the wine merchant's cellar below, appeared to have a separate peal of echoes of its own. Scrooge was not a man to be frightened by echoes. He fastened the door, and walked across the hall and up the stairs, slowly too, trimming his candle as he went. Up Scrooge went, not caring a button for the darkness. Darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it, but before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. He had just enough recollection of the face to desire to do that. Sitting room, bedroom, lumber room, all as they should be. Nobody under the table, nobody under the sofa, a small fire in the grate, spoon and basin ready, and the little saucepan of gruel. Scrooge had a cold in his head upon the hob. Nobody under the bed, nobody in the closet, nobody in his dressing gown, which was hanging up in a suspicious attitude against the wall. Lumber room, as usual, old fire guards, old shoes, two fish baskets, 
washing stand on three legs, and a poker. Quite satisfied, he closed his door and locked himself in. Double locked himself in, which was not his custom. Thus secured against surprise, he took off his cravat, put on his dressing gown and slippers and his nightcap, and sat down before the fire to take his gruel. It was a very low fire indeed, nothing on such a bitter night. He was obliged to sit close to it and brood over it before he could extract the least sensation of warmth from such a handful of fuel. The fireplace was an old one, built by some Dutch merchant long ago, and paved all round with quaint Dutch tiles designed to illustrate the scriptures. There were Cain's and Abel's, Pharaoh's daughters, Queen's of Sheba, angelic messengers descending through the air on clouds like feather beds, Abraham's, Belshazzar's, apostles putting off to sea in butterboats, hundreds of figures to attract his thoughts, and yet, that face of Marley, seven years dead, came like an ancient prophet's rod and swallowed up the whole. If each smooth tile had been blank at first, with power to shape some picture on its surface from the disjointed fragments of his thoughts, there would have been a copy of old Marley's head on every one. Humbug. After several turns of anxious pacing around the room, Scrooge sat down again. As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a bell, a disused bell that hung in the room and communicated for some purpose now forgotten with a chamber in the highest story of the building. It was with great astonishment and with a strange, inexplicable dread that, as he looked, he saw this bell began to swing. It swung so softly in the outset that it scarcely made a sound. But soon, it rang out loudly, and so did every bell in the house. Ah! Ah! This might have lasted half a minute, or a minute, but it seemed like an hour. The bells ceased as they had begun, together. They were succeeded by a clanking noise, deep down below as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the casks in the wine merchant's cellar. Scrooge then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound, and then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards his door. It's humbug still. I won't believe it. His colour changed, though, when, without a pause, a ghostly apparition came on through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. The same face. The very same. Marley, in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights and boots, the tassels on the latter bristling like his pigtail and his coat skirts, and the hair upon his head. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long, and wound about him like a tail, and it was made, for Scrooge observed it closely, of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent so that Scrooge, observing him, and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. 
Scrooge had often heard it said that Marley had no bowels, but he had never believed it until now. No, nor did he believe it now. Though he looked the phantom through and through, and saw it standing before him, though he felt the chilling influence of his death-cold eyes, and marked the very texture of the folded kerchief bound about its head and chin, which wrapper he had not observed before, he was still incredulous, and fought against his senses. How now? What do you want with me? Much. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you, then? You're particular for a shade. In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you... can you sit down? I can. Do it, then. You don't believe in me. I don't. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses? I don't know. Why do you doubt your senses? Because a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Scrooge was not much in the habit of cracking jokes, nor did he feel, in his heart, by any means waggish then. The truth is that he tried to be smart as a means of distracting his own attention and keeping down his terror, for the spectre's voice disturbed the very marrow in his bones. To sit, staring at those fixed, glazed eyes, in silence for a moment, would play, Scrooge felt, the very deuce with him. There was something very awful, too, in the spectre's being provided with an infernal atmosphere of its own. Scrooge could not feel it himself, but it was clearly the case. For though the ghost sat perfectly motionless, its hair, its skirts and tassels were still agitated as by the hot vapour from an oven. You see this toothpick? I do. You were not looking at it. But I see it, notwithstanding. Well, I have but to swallow this and be for the rest of my days persecuted by a legion of goblins, all of my own creation. Humbug, I tell you. Humbug. apparition. Why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, do you believe in me or not? I do. I must. But why do spirits walk the earth? And why do they come to me? Doomed to wander 
you are fettered. Tell me why. I wear the chain. I forged in life. I lead it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will. And of my own free will, I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give. It comes from other regions. Ebenezer Scrooge and is conveyed by other ministers to other kinds of men. Nor can I tell you what I would. A very little more. This is all permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mark me. In life, my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money changing. have been very slow about it, Jacob. Seven years dead and travelling all the time. The whole time. No rest, no peace. Incessant torture of remorse. You travel fast? On the wings of the wind. You might have got over a great quantity of ground in seven years. Jacob. Business. Mankind. 
mind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. At this time of the rolling year, I suffer most. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise him to the blessed star which led the wise men to a more abode? me. Hear me. My time is nearly gone. I will, but don't be hard upon me, Jacob. Pray. How is it that I appear before you in a shape that only you can see? I may not tell. I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. That is no light part of my penance. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. A chance and hope of my procuring, Ebenezer. You always were a good friend to me. Thank ye. You will be haunted by three spirits. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? It is. I... I think I'd rather not. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow, when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Expect the second on the next night at the same hour. The third upon the next night, when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more. And look that for your own sake. You will remember what has passed between. Scrooge ventured to raise his eyes again, and found his supernatural visitor confronting him in an erect attitude, with its chains wound over and about its arm. The apparition walked backwards from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little, so that when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. It beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. When they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge stopped, not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear, for on the raising of the hand he became sensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The spectre, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window, desperate in his curiosity. He looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghosts. Some few, they might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle, 
who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant, whom it saw below upon the doorstep. The misery with them all was, clearly, that they sought to interfere for good in human matters, and had lost the power forever. Whether these creatures faded into mist, or mist enshrouded them, he could not tell, but they and their spirit voices faded together, and the night became as it had been when he walked home. Scrooge closed the window, and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double-locked, as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. (laughs) Scrooge, being from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or his glimpses of the invisible world, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose, went straight to bed, without undressing, and fell asleep upon the instant. When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that looking out of bed, he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window of the opaque walls of his chamber. He was endeavouring to pierce the darkness with his ferret eyes when the chimes of a neighbouring church struck the four quarters. So, he listened for the hour. To his great astonishment, the heavy bell went from six to seven, and from seven to eight, and regularly up to twelve, then stopped. It was past two when he went to bed. The clock was wrong. An icicle must have gotten the works. Twelve. Why, it isn't possible that I can have slept through a whole day and far into another night. It isn't possible that anything has happened to the sun and this is twelve at noon. The idea being an alarming one, he scrambled out of bed and groped his way to the window. He was obliged to rub the frost off with the sleeve of his dressing gown before he could see anything, and could see very little then. All he could make out was that it was still very foggy and extremely cold, and that there was no noise of people running to and fro and making a great stir, as there unquestionably would have been if night had beaten off bright day and taken possession of the world. This was a great relief to Scrooge's confused mind. He went to bed again, and thought, and thought, and thought it over, and over, and over, and could make nothing of it. The more he thought, the more perplexed he was, and the more he endeavoured not to think, the more he thought. Marley's ghost bothered him exceedingly. Every time he resolved within himself, after mature inquiry, that it was all a dream, his mind flew back again, like a strong spring released to its first position, and presented the same problem to be worked all through. Was it a dream, or not? Scrooge lay in this state until the chimes had gone three quarters more, when he remembered of a sudden that the ghost had warned him of a visitation when the bell tolled one. He resolved to lie awake until the hour was past, and considering that he could no more go to sleep than go to heaven, this was perhaps the wisest resolution in his power. The quarter was so long that he was once more convinced he must have sunk into a doze unconsciously and missed the clock. At length, it broke.
broke upon his listening ear. A quarter past. Half past. A quarter to it. <gasps> the hour itself and nothing else. He spoke before the hour bell sounded, which it now did with the deep, dull, hollow, melancholy one. Light flashed up in the room upon the instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, I tell you, by hand. Not the curtains at his feet, nor the curtains at his back, but those to which his face was addressed. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, and Scrooge, starting up into a half-recumbent attitude, found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew them. As close as I am now to you, and I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so much like a child as like an old person, viewed through some supernatural medium which gave it the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished to a child's proportion. Its hair, which hung about his neck and down its back, was white as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it, and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arms were very long and muscular, the hands the same, as if its hold were of uncommon strength. Its legs and feet, most delicately formed, were, like those upper members, bare. It wore a tunic of the purest white, and round its waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. It held a branch of fresh green holly in its hand, and, in singular contradiction of that wintry emblem, had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. But the strangest thing about it was that, from the crown of its head, there sprung a bright clear jet of light, by which all this was visible and which was, doubtless, the occasion of its using, in its duller moments, a great extinguisher for a cap which it now held under its arm. Even this, though, when Scrooge looked at it with increasing steadiness, was not its strangest quality. For as its belt sparkled in glitter, now in one part and now in another, and what was light one instant at another time was dark, so the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness being now a thing with one arm, now with one leg, now with twenty legs, now a pair of legs without a head, now a head without a body, of which dissolving parts no outline would be visible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away. And, in the very wonder of this, it would be itself again, distinct and clear as ever. Are you the spirit whose coming was foretold to me? I Who and what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? No, your past. Your light, it's so bright. Pray, could you, would you please put on your cap? What? Would you so soon put out, with worldly hands, the light I give? 
Is it not enough that you are one of those whose passions made this camp and forced me through whole trains of years to wear it low upon my brow? Oh, oh I meant no offence. I, I profess I never had any knowledge of willfully bulleting you, spirit, at any period of my life. Might I make bold to inquire what business brought you here? Your welfare. Ah, I see. Well, I am much obliged. But I can't help thinking that a night of unbroken rest would have been much more conducive to that end. Your reclamation, then. Take heed. Rise and walk with me. But spirit, the weather, the hour... This night is not adapted to pedestrian purposes. Uh, my bed is warm. The thermometer's way below freezing. I'm merely attired in my slippers, dressing gown and nightcap. I have a cold upon me and... Come to the window. But, but I, I'm mortal and, and liable to fall. Bear but a touch of my hand there. And you shall be upheld in more than this. Good heaven! Where up? But how? I, I was bred in this place. I was a boy here. Good heaven! Your lip is trembling. And what is that upon your cheek? Nothing, nothing. It's, it's just a pimple. Spirit, lead me where you will. You recollect the way? Remember it? I could walk it blindfold. Strange to have forgotten it for so many years. Let us go on. It's exactly as I recall it. Why, that gate there, it leads to our favourite apple orchard. And that tree, over yonder, that's the tree that we would climb to catch a view if it was coming down the road. And there, that post, oh, was a post. Why, it can't be. That's Albie Simpson and Nathaniel Austin and Stanley Howard. Boys, it's old Ebenezer. These are but shadows of the things that have been. They have no consciousness of us. The school is not quite deserted. A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there still. Yes. Yes, I know it. Look, Scrooge. The boy sits. Lonely by the feeble fire. A book, his only companion. You know him, do you not? Know him? He is... He is me. Poor boy. All alone. 
Poor, poor boy. But you weren't all alone, were you, Scrooge? Your box kept you company. Look. Why, it's Alibaba! It's dear old honest Alibaba! Yes, yes, I know. One Christmas time, when yonder solitary child was left here all alone, he did come for the first time, just like that. Poor boy. And Valentine and his wild brother, Orson. There they go. Ah, oh, what was his name? It was put down in his drawers, asleep at the gate of Damascus. Don't you see him? And the Sultan's groom, turned upside down by the genie. There he is, upon his head. Serve him right. I'm glad of it. What business had he to be married to the princess? There's the parrot. Green body and yellow tail with a thing like a lettuce coming out of the top of his head. There he is. Poor Robin Crusoe, he called him when he came home again after sailing round the island. Poor Robin Crusoe. Where have you been, Robin Crusoe? The man thought he was dreaming, but he wasn't. It was the parrot, you know. There goes Friday, running for his life to the little creek. Poor boy. I wish. But it's, but it's too late now. What is the matter? Nothing. Nothing. There was a girl singing a Christmas carol at my door last night. I should like to have given her something. That's all. Let us see another Christmas. Dear, dear brother, I have come to bring you home, dear brother. To bring you home. 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 Home, little fan? Yes, home. For good and all. Home forever and ever. Father is so much kinder than he used to be, that home's like heaven. He spoke so gently to me one dear night when I was going to bed that I was not afraid to ask him once more if you might come home. And he said yes, you should, and sent me in a coach to bring you. And you're to be a man, and are never to come back here. But first, we're to be together all the Christmas long and have the merriest time in all the world. You are quite a woman, little fan. Come, come, let's go. Always a delicate creature, whom a breath might have withered. But she had a large heart. So she had. You're right. I'll not gainsay it, spirit. God forbid. She died a woman, and had, as I think, children. One child. True. Your nephew. Yes. This warehouse. Do you know it? Know it? Was I apprenticed here? Why, it's old Fezziwig. Bless his heart. It's Fezziwig alive again. Dick Wilkins, to be sure. Bless me, yes. There he is. He was very much attached to me, was Dick. Poor Dick. Yes, sir. Dear, dear. 
Hi-lio. Clear away, my lads, and let's have lots of room here. Hi-lio, Dick. Cheer up, Ebenezer. Oh, Fezziwig. Never did a man throw a party like good old Fezziwig. A small matter to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. He has spent but a few pounds of your mortal money. Three or four, perhaps. Is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that. It isn't that, spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. Say that his power lies in words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count them up. What then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. What is the matter? Nothing in particular. Something, I think. No, no. I should like to be able to say a word or two to my clerk just now. That's all. My time grows short. Quick! It matters little to you. Very little. Another idol has displaced me. And if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do, I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you? A golden one. This is the even-handed dealing of the world. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. You fear the world too much. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion, gain, engrosses you. Have I not? What then? Even if I have grown so much wiser, what then? I am not changed towards you. Am I? Our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so, until, in good season, we could improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You are changed. When it was made, you were another man. I was a boy. Your own feeling tells you that you were not what you are. I am. That which promised happiness when we were one in heart is fraught with misery now that we are two. How often and how keenly I have thought of this, I will not say. It is enough that I have thought of it and can release you. Have I ever sought release? In words, no. Never. In what, then? In a changed nature, in an altered spirit, in another atmosphere of life. Another hope as its great end. 
in everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. If this had never been between us, tell me, would you seek me out and try to win me now? No. You think not? I would gladly think otherwise if I could, heaven knows. When I have learned a truth like this, I know how strong and irresistible it must be. But if you were free today, tomorrow, yesterday, can even I believe that you would choose a dowerless girl? You who, in your very confidence with her, weigh everything by gain, or choosing her, if for a moment you were false enough to your one guiding principle to do so, do I not know that your repentance and regret would surely follow? I do. And I release you with a full heart for the love of him you once were. You may, the memory of what is past half makes me hope you will, have pain in this. A very, very brief time. And you will dismiss the recollection of it gladly as an unfortunate dream from which it happened well that you awoke. May you be happy in the life you have chosen. Spirit, show me no more. Conduct me home. Why do you delight to torture me? One shadow more. No more. No more. I don't wish to see it. Show me no more. Merry Christmas. And I've got presents for all of you. <laughs> now upstairs with all of you. I need to give your mother a Christmas kiss. Bill, I saw an old friend of yours this afternoon. Who was it? Guess. How can I? Don't I know? <laughs> Mr Scrooge. Mr Scrooge it was. I passed his office window and as it was not shut up and he had a candle inside, I could scarcely help seeing him. His partner lies upon the point of death, I hear. And there he sat alone, quite alone in the world, I do believe. Spirit, remove me from this place. I told you these were shadows of the things that have been, that they are what they are. Do not blame me. Remove me. I cannot bear it. Leave me. Take me back. Haunt me no longer. Spirit? Spirit? Scrooge, come enter. A light shone through Scrooge's door. It was not a light he recognized. It was brighter, more cheery than any his dull apartment had ever known. Slowly drawing the door open, Scrooge peered in, seeking the voice that had called him. On the other side, Scrooge saw his own room. There was no doubt about that. 
but it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceilings were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light, as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there. And such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney, as that dull petrification of a hearth had ever known in Scrooge's time, or Marley's, or for many, many a winter season gone. Heaped up on the floor, to form a kind of throne, were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon this couch, there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in a shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up high up to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. <laughs> come in, come in, and know me better, man. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe or mantle, bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice. Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holy wreath, set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanour, and its joyful air. Girded round its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it, and the ancient sheath was eaten up with rust. <laughs> you, you have never seen the like of me before! Never? I've never walked forth with the younger members of my family. Meaning, for I am very young, my elder brothers born in these later years? I don't think I have. I I'm afraid I have not. Have you many brothers, Spirit? Ho 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 ho! More than 1800! A tremendous family to provide for. Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learnt a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Aha! Touch my robe! Scrooge did as he was told, and held it fast. Holly, mistletoe, red berries, ivy, turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, meat, pigs, sausages, oysters, pies, puddings, fruit, and punch all vanished instantly. So did the room, the fire, the ruddy glow, the hour of night, and they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning, where, for the weather was severe, the people made a rough but brisk and not unpleasant kind of music in scraping the snow from the pavement in front of their dwellings, and from the tops of their houses, whence it was mad delight to the boys to see it come plumping down into the road below and splitting into artificial little snowstorms. 
The house fronts look black enough, and the windows blacker, contrasting with the smooth white sheet of snow upon the roofs, and with the dirtier snow upon the ground, which last deposits had been ploughed up in deep furrows by the heavy wheels of carts and wagons, furrows that crossed and recrossed each other hundreds of times where the great streets branched off and made intricate channels, hard to trace in the thick yellow mud and icy water. The sky was gloomy, and the shorter streets were choked up in a dingy mist, half-thawed, half-frozen, whose heavier particles descended in showers of sooty atoms, as if all the chimneys in Great Britain had, by one consent, caught fire and were blazing away to their dear heart's content. There was nothing very cheerful in the climate or the town, and yet there was an air of cheerfulness abroad that the clearest summer air and brightest summer sun might have endeavoured to diffuse in vain. For the people who were shoveling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another from the parapets, and now and then exchanging a facetious snowball. Better-natured missiles far than many a wordy jest, laughing heartily if it went right, and not less heartily if it went wrong. The pelterer's shop was still half open, and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. There were great, round, pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts, shaped like waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen, lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the streets in their apoplectic opulence. There were ruddy, brown-faced, broad-girthed Spanish friars, and winking from their shelves in wanton slyness at the girls as they went by and glanced demurely at the hung-up mistletoe. There were pears and apples, clustered high in blooming pyramids. There were bunches of grapes, made in the shopkeeper's benevolence to dangle from conspicuous hooks that people's mouths might water as they passed. There were piles of filberts, mossy and brown, recalling in their fragrance ancient walks among the woods, and pleasant shufflings ankle-deep through withered leaves. There were Norfolk biffins, squab and swarthy, setting off the yellow of the oranges and lemons, and, in the great compactness of their juicy persons, urgently entreating and beseeching to be carried home in paper bags and eaten after dinner. The very gold and silver fish set forth among these choice fruits in a bowl, though members of a dull and stagnant-blooded race appeared to know that there was something going on, and two fish went gasping round and round their little world in slow and passionless excitement. The grocers! Oh, the grocers! Nearly closed, with perhaps two shutters down, or one, but through those gaps, such glimpses. It was not alone that the scales descending on the counter made a merry sound, or that the twine and roller parted company so briskly, or that the canisters were rattled up and down like juggling tricks, or even that the blended scents of tea and coffee were so grateful to the nose, or even that the raisins were so plentiful and rare, the almonds so extremely white, the sticks of cinnamon so long and straight, the other spices so delicious, the candied fruit so caked and spotted with molten sugar as to make the coldest lookers-on feel faint and subsequently bilious. Nor was it that the figs were moist and pulpy, or that the French plums blushed in modest tartness from their highly decorated boxes, or that everything was good to eat and in its Christmas dress, but the customers were all so hurried and so eager in the hopeful promise of the day that they tumbled up against each other at the door, clashing their wicker baskets wildly, and left their purchases upon the counter and came running back to fetch them, and committed hundreds of the like mistakes in the best humour possible. While the grocer and his people were so frank and fresh that the polished hearts with which they fastened their aprons behind might have been their own, worn outside for general inspection, and for the Christmas doors to peck at if they chose. 
But soon, the steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes and with their gayest faces. And at the same time, there emerged from scores of by-streets, lanes, and nameless turnings innumerable people carrying their dinners to the baker's shops. The sight of these poor revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him in a baker's doorway, and taking off the covers as the bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch. And it was a very uncommon kind of torch, for once or twice, when there were angry words between some dinner carriers who had jostled each other, he shed a few drops of water on them from it, and their good humour was restored directly. For, they said, it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas Day. And so it was, God love it, so it was. In time the bells ceased, and the bakers were shut up, and yet there was a genial shadowing forth of all these dinners, and the progress of their cooking in the thawed blotch of wet above each baker's oven, where the pavement smoked as if its stones were cooking too. Is there a peculiar flavour in what you sprinkle from your torch? Aye, there is. My own. Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day? <laughs> to any kindly given. To a poor one, most. Why to a poor one, most? Because it needs it, most. Spirit, I wonder you, of all the beings in the many worlds about us, should desire to cramp these people's opportunities of innocent enjoyment. What is that you say? You would deprive them of their means of dining every seventh day, often the only day on which they can be said to dine at all, wouldn't you? You seek to close these places on the seventh day, and it comes to the same thing. You don't know what you're saying there, man! Forgive me if I am wrong, it has been done in your name, or at least in that of your family. Aye, there are some upon this earth of yours who lay claim to know us, and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill will, hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness in our name who are estranged to us and all our kith and kin, as if they had never lied. Remember that, and charge their doings on themselves, not us. Very well. I will. They went on, invisible as they had been before, into the suburbs of the town. It was a remarkable quality of the ghost, which Scrooge had observed at the baker's, that, notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease, and that he stood beneath a low roof quite as gracefully and like a supernatural creature as it was possible he could have done in any lofty hole. And perhaps it was the pleasure the good spirit had in showing off this power of his, or else it was his own kind, generous hearty nature, and his sympathy with all poor men, that led him straight to Scrooge's clerk. For there he went, and took Scrooge with him, holding to his robe, and on the threshold of the door the spirit smiled, and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinkling of his torch. Think of that! Bob had but fifteen bob a week himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but fifteen copies of his Christian name, and yet 
The ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-roomed house. Then rose up Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons, which are cheap and made a goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes, and, getting the corners of his monstrous shirt-collar, Bob's private property, conferred upon his son and heir in honour of the day, into his mouth, rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired, and yearned to show his linen in the fashionable parks. And now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the baker's they had smelt the goose, and known it for their own, and basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these young Cratchits danced about the table, and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies, while he, not proud, although his collars nearly choked him, blew the fire, until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. "'Whatever has got your precious father, then? "'And your brother, Tiny Tim? "'And Martha weren't as late last Christmas Day by half an hour?' "'Here's Martha, Mother.' "'Here's Martha, Mother. "'Hurrah! There's such a goose, Martha!' "'Why, bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are!' "'We'd a a deal of work to finish up last night, "'and had to clear away this morning, Mother.' Well, never mind, so long as you are come. Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm Lord bless ye. No, no, there's father coming. Oh, hide, Martha, hide! (laughs) Why, where's Martha? Not coming. Not coming? Not coming upon Christmas Day? Here I am, father. (laughs) Martha! And how did little Tim behave? As good as gold, and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much, and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me, coming home, that he hoped that people saw him in the church, because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant for them to remember upon Christmas Day, who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to his stool before the fire. And while Bob, turning up his cuffs, as if, poor fellow, they were capable of being made more shabby, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons, and stirred it round and round and put it on the hob to simmer. Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon to which a black swan was a matter of course. And in truth, it was something very like it in that house. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy, ready beforehand in a little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigour. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits set chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves, and, mounting guard upon their post, crammed spoons into their mouths, lest they should shriek for goose before their turn came to be helped. At last, the dishes were set on, and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause, as Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it into the breast. But when she did, 
and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all round the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife and feebly cried, Hurrah! There was never such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there ever was such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavor, size and cheekness were the themes of universal admiration. Eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. Indeed, as Mrs. Cratchit said with great delight, surveying one small atom of a bone upon the dish, they hadn't ate it all at last. Yet every one had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onions to the eyebrows. But now, the plates being changed by Miss Belinda, Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous to bear witness, to take the pudding up and bring it in. Suppose it should not be done enough. Suppose it should break in turning out. Suppose somebody should have got over the wall of the backyard and stolen it while they were merry with the goose, a supposition at which the two young Cratchits became livid. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Hello, a great deal of steam. The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like a washing day. That was the cloth. A smell like an eating house and a pastry cook's next door to each other, with a laundress's next door to that. That was the pudding. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed, but smiling proudly, with the pudding, like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half of half a quartern of ignited brandy, and bedighted with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, what a wonderful pudding, Bob Cratchit said, and calmly too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. Mrs. Cratchit said that, now the weight was off her mind, she would confess that she had had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had said something about it, but nobody said or thought it was at all a small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat heresy to do so. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. At last, the dinner was all done, the cloth was cleared, the hearth swept, and the fire made up. The compound in the jug being tasted and considered perfect, apples and oranges were put upon the table, and a shovelful of chestnuts on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning half a one, and at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers and a custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug, however, as well as golden goblets would have done, and Bob served it out with beaming looks, while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and cracked noisily. A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. God bless us. God bless us, everyone. Spirit, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, oh no, kind spirit. Say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race will find him here. What then? If he be like today, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Man. 
If man you be in heart, not adamant, forbear that wicked cant until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than the millions like this poor man's child. Oh, God! To hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Mr Scrooge, I'll give you Mr Scrooge, the founder of the feast. Huh, the founder of the feast indeed. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon and I hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, the children... Christmas Day. It should be Christmas Day, I am sure, on which one drinks the elf of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. Oh dear, Christmas Day. I'll drink to his elf, for your sake, and for the days, not for his. Long life to him. A very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. The children drank the toast after her. It was the first of their proceedings which had no heartiness. Tiny Tim drank it last of all, but he didn't care two pence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. The mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party, which was not dispelled for a full five minutes. After it passed away, they were ten times merrier than before from the mere relief of Scrooge the Baleful being done with. Bob Cratchit told them how he had a situation in his eye for Master Peter, which would bring in, if obtained, full five and six pence weekly. The two young Cratchits laughed tremendously at the idea of Peter's being a man of business, and Peter himself looked thoughtfully at the fire from between his collars, as if he were deliberating what particular investments he should favour when he came into the receipt of that bewildering income. Martha, who was a poor apprentice at a milliner's, then told them what kind of work she had to do, and how many hours she worked at a stretch, and how she meant to lie bed tomorrow morning for a good long rest, tomorrow being a holiday she passed at home. Also, how she had seen a countess and a lord some days before, and how the lord was much about as tall as Peter. At which, Peter pulled up his collar so high that you couldn't have seen his head if you had been there. All this time, the chestnuts in the jug went round and round, and by and by they had a song about a lost child travelling in the snow, from Tiny Tim, who had a plaintive little voice, and sang it very well indeed. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty, and Peter might have known, and very likely did, the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful pleased with one another, and content with the time. And when they faded, and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim until the last. By this time it was getting dark, and snowing pretty heavily, and as Scrooge and the spirit went along the streets, the brightness of the roaring fires in kitchens, parlours, and all sorts of rooms was wonderful. Here the flickering of the blaze showed preparations for a cosy dinner, 
with hot plates baking through and through before the fire, and deep red curtains ready to be drawn to shut out cold and darkness. There, all the children of the house were running out into the snow to meet their married sisters, brothers, cousins, uncles, aunts, and to be the first to greet them. Here again were shadows on the window blind of guests assembling, and there a group of handsome girls, all hooded and fur-booted and all chatting at once, tripped lightly off to some near neighbor's house, where woe upon the single man who saw them enter, artful witches, well they knew it, in a glow. But if you had judged from the numbers of people on their way to friendly gatherings, you might have thought that no one was at home to give them welcome when they got there, instead of every house expecting company and piling up its fires half chimney high. Blessings on it, how the ghost exulted, how it bared its breadth of breast and opened its capacious palm and floated on, outpouring with a generous hand its bright and harmless mirth on everything within its reach. The very lamplighter, who ran on before, dotting the dusky street with specks of light, and who was dressed to spend the evening somewhere, laughed out loudly as the spirit passed, though little Ken, the lamplighter, that he had any company but Christmas. And now, without word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and desert moor, where monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about, as though it were the burial place of giants, and the water spread itself wheresoever it listed, or would have done so, but for the frost that held it prisoner, and nothing grew but moss and furs and coarse rank grass. Down in the west, the setting sun had left a streak of fiery red, which glared upon the desolation for an instant like a sullen eye, and frowning lower, lower, lower yet, was lost in the thick gloom of darkest night. What place is this? A place where miners live, who labour in the bowels of the earth. But they know me. <laughs> See? A light shone from the window of a hut, and swiftly they advanced towards it. Passing through the wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled round a glowing fire. An old, old man and woman, and their children, and their children's children, and another generation beyond that, all decked out gaily in their holiday attire. The old man, in a voice that seldom rose above the howling of the wind upon the barren waste, was singing them a Christmas song. It had been a very old song when he was a boy, and from time to time they all joined in the chorus. So surely as they raised their voices, the old man got quite blithe and loud, and so surely they stopped, his vigour sank again. The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe, and, passing on above the moor, sped whither? Not to see. To see. To Scrooge's horror, looking back, he saw the last of the land, a frightful range of rocks behind them, and his ears were deafened by the thundering of water. As it rolled and roared and raged among the dreadful caverns it had worn, and fiercely tried to undermine the earth. Built upon a dismal reef of sunken rocks, some leagues or so from shore, on which the waters chafed and dashed the wild year through, there stood a solitary lighthouse. Great heaps of seaweed clung to its base, and storm-birds, born of the wind one might suppose, as seaweed of the water, rose and fell about it like the waves they skimmed. But even here, two men who watched the light had made a fire that, through the loophole in the thick stone wall, shed out a ray of brightness on the awful sea. Joining their hands over the rough table at which they sat, they wished each other Merry Christmas in their can of grog. And one of them, the elder too, with his face all damaged and scarred with hard weather, as the figurehead of an old ship might be, 
struck up a sturdy song that was like a gale in itself. Again, the ghost sped on, on and on above the black and heaving sea, on, on, until being far away, as he told Scrooge from any shore, they lighted on a ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel, the lookout in the bow, the officers who had the watch, dark, ghostly figures in their several stations. But every man among them hummed a Christmas tune or had a Christmas thought, or spoke below his breath to his companion of some bygone Christmas day, with homeward hopes belonging to it. And every man on board, waking or sleeping, good or bad, had a kinder word for another on that day than on any in the year, and had shared to some extent in its festivities, and had remembered those he cared for at a distance, and had known that they delighted to remember him. It was a great surprise to Scrooge, while listening to the moaning of the wind, and thinking what a solemn thing it was to move on through the lonely darkness over an unknown abyss, whose depths were secrets as profound as death. It was a great surprise to Scrooge, while thus engaged, to hear a hearty laugh. It was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognize it was his own nephew's, and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room with a spirit standing smiling by his side, and looking at that same nephew with approving affability. <laughs> he said that Christmas was a humbug as I live. He believed it too. More shame for him, Fred. He's a comical old fellow, that's the truth. And not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offences carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he's very rich, Fred. At least you always tell me so. What of that, my dear? His wealth is of no use to him. He don't do any good with it. He don't make himself comfortable with it. <laughs> he hasn't the satisfaction of thinking <laughs> that he is ever going to benefit us with it. I have no patience with him. Oh, I have. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? Himself, always. Here he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? He don't lose much of a dinner, do you think? Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner. <laughs> well, I'm very glad to hear it, because I haven't great faith in these young housekeepers. What do you say, Topper? Oh, a bachelor is a wretched outcast and has no right to express an opinion on the subject. Do go on, Fred. He never finishes what he begins to say. He's such a ridiculous <laughs> fellow. I was only going to say that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, as I think, that he loses some pleasant moments which could do him no harm. I am sure he loses pleasanter companions than he can find in his own thoughts, either in his mouldy old office or his dusty chambers. I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas till he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it. I defy him if he finds me going there in good temper year after year and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? If it only puts him in the same vein to leave his poor clerk 50 pounds, that's something. And I think I shook him yesterday. After tea, they had some music, for they were a musical family and knew what they were about. When they sung a glee or catch, I can assure you. Especially Topper, who could growl away in the bass like a good one and never swell the large veins of his forehead, or get red in the face over it. Scrooge's niece played well upon the harp, and played among other tunes a simple little air, a mere nothing, 
you might learn to whistle it in two minutes, which had been familiar to the child who fetched Scrooge from the boarding school, as he had been reminded by the ghosts of Christmas past. When this strain of music sounded, all the things that ghost had shown him came upon his mind. He softened more and more, and thought that if he could have listened to it often, years ago, he might have cultivated the kindness of life for his own happiness with his own hands, without resorting to the sexton spade that buried Jacob Marley. But they didn't devote the whole evening to music. After a while they played it forfeits, for it is good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas, when its mighty founder was a child himself. Oh, <laughs> there was a first game of blind man's buff. Of course there was. And I no more believe Topper was really blind than I believe he had eyes in his boots. My opinion is that it was a done thing between him and Scrooge's nephew, and that the ghost of Christmas present knew it. The way he went after the plump sister and the lace tucker was an outrage on the credulity of human nature, knocking down the fire irons, tumbling over the chairs, bumping against the piano, smothering himself among the curtains. Wherever she went, there went he. He always knew where the plump sister was. He wouldn't catch anybody else. If you had fallen up against him, as some of them did, on purpose, he would have made a feint of endeavouring to seize you, which would have been an affront to your understanding, and would instantly have sidled off in the direction of the plump sister. She often cried out that it wasn't fair, and it really was not, but when at last he caught her, when in spite of all her silken rustlings and her rapid fluttering past him, he got her into a corner whence there was no escape, then his conduct was the most execrable. For his pretending not to know her, his pretending that it was necessary to touch her headdress, and further, to assure himself of her identity by pressing a certain ring upon her finger, and a certain chain about her neck, was vile, monstrous. No doubt she told him her opinion of it when, another blind man being in office, they were so very confidential together behind the curtains. Scrooge's niece was not one of the blind man's buff party, but was made comfortable with a large chair and a footstool in a snug corner where the ghost and Scrooge were close behind her. But she joined in the forfeits and laughed her love to admiration with all the letters of the alphabet. Likewise, at the game of how, when, and where, she was very great, and to the secret joy of Scrooge's nephew, beat her sisters hollow. Though they were sharp girls too, as anyone could have told you. There might have been twenty people there, young and old, but they all played, and so did Scrooge, for wholly forgetting the interest he had in what was going on, that his voice made no sound in their ears. He sometimes came out with his guess quite loud, and very often guessed quite right too, for the sharpest needle, best Whitechapel warranted not cut in the eye, was not sharper than Scrooge, blunt as he took it in his head to be. The ghost was greatly pleased to find him in this mood, and looked upon him with favour. Spirit, please, let us stay and enjoy this a while more. Please? Ah, it cannot be done. Here's a new game they're about to play. One half hour, Spirit, only one. I'm thinking of something. Is it an animal? Yes. Is it a live animal? Yes. Is it a disagreeable animal? <laughs> yes. Ah, would you say that it is a savage animal? <laughs> yes. Fred, does this animal growl and grunt sometimes? Or does it talk sometimes? <laughs> yes. 
Does it live in London and walk about the streets? Yes. Is it made a show of or led by anybody? No. Does it live in a menagerie? Not that I'm aware of. Is it a dog? No. Is it a bear? <laughs> Wrong again. I have found it out. I know what it is, Fred. I know what it is. What is it? It's your Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> You've got it. <laughs> <laughs> I hardly think that is fair. Certainly your reply to is it a bear ought to have been yes, inasmuch as an answer in the negative was sufficient to have diverted my thoughts from Mr. Scrooge. <laughs> he has given us plenty of merriment, I am sure, and it would be ungrateful not to drink to his health. Here is a glass of mulled wine ready to our hand at the moment, and I say, Uncle Scrooge! Well, Uncle Scrooge! Well, Uncle Scrooge! A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man wherever he is. He wouldn't take it from me, but may he have it nevertheless. Uncle Scrooge! Uncle Scrooge had imperceptibly become so happy and light of heart that he would have pledged the unconscious company in return and thanked them in an inaudible speech if the ghost had given him time. But the whole scene passed off in the breath of the last word spoken by his nephew, and he and the spirit were again upon their travels. Much they saw, and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirit stood beside sick beds, and they were cheerful on foreign lands, and they were close at home, by struggling men, and they were patient in their greater hope, by poverty, and it was rich, in almshouse, hospital and jail, in misery's every refuge, where vain man in his little brief authority had not made fast the door and barred the spirit out, he left his blessing and taught Scrooge his precepts. It was a long night, if it were only a night, but Scrooge had his doubts of this, because the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into the space of time they passed together. It was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it, until they left a children's twelfth night party, when, looking at the spirit as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that its hair was grey. Our spirit's life so short. My life upon this globe is very brief. It ends tonight. Tonight? Tonight, at midnight. Ha ha ha! The time is drawing near. Forgive me if I am not justified in what I ask, but I see something strange and not belonging to yourself protruding from your skirts. Is it a foot or a claw? Aye, it might be a claw, for the flesh there is upon it. Look here, oh man, look here, look, look down here. Behold this boy and this girl, yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate too in their humility. 
where graceful youth should fill these features out and touch them with its freshest tints, a stale and shriveled hand like that of age has pinched and twisted them and pulled them into shreds. Where angels might have sat enthroned, devils lurk and glare out menacing. No change, no degradation, no perversion of humanity in any grade through all the mysteries of wonderful creation has monsters half so horrible and dread. Spirit, are they yours? <laughs> they are man's, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance. This girl is what? Beware them both and all of their degree, but most of all beware this boy, for on his brow I see that written which is due, unless the writing can be erased. Deny it! Slander those who tell it ye! Admit it! for your factious purposes and make it worse and abide the end. Have they no refuge or resource? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? <laughs> Scrooge looked about him for the ghost, and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley, and, lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which the spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this, it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night, and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him, and that its mysterious presence filled him with a solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit neither spoke nor moved. I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come. I am. 
you were about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us. Is that so, spirit? It is. Oh, ghost of future, I fear you more than any spectre I have seen. But as I know your purpose is to do me good, and as I hope to live to be another man from what I was, I am prepared to bear you company and do it with a thankful heart. Um. Lead on. Lead on. The night is waning fast, and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit. The phantom moved away as it had come towards him. Scrooge followed in the shadows of its dress, which bore him up, he thought, and carried him along. They scarcely seemed to enter the city, for the city rather seemed to spring up about them and encompass them of its own act. But there they were, in the heart of it, on change amongst the merchants, who hurried up and down and chinked the money in their pockets and conversed in groups and looked at their watches and trilled thoughtfully with their great gold seals and so forth, as Scrooge had seen them often. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen. Listen well, Ebenezer Scrooge. I don't know much about it either way. I only know he's dead. Hmm. When did he die? Last night, I believe. Why? What was the matter with him? I thought he'd never die. <sighs> God knows. What has he done with his money? Oh, I haven't heard. Left it to his company, perhaps. He hasn't left it to me. That's all I know. <laughs> it's likely to be a very cheap funeral. For upon my life, I don't know of anybody to go to it. Suppose we make up a party and volunteer. Uh, I don't mind going if a lunch is provided, but I must be fed if I make one. <laughs> well, I am the most disinterested among you, after all, for I never wear black gloves and I never eat lunch. <laughs> but off it go, if anybody else will. When I come to think of it, I'm not at all sure that I wasn't his most particular friend, for we used to stop and speak whenever we met. Spirit, I know these men. Of whom are they speaking? Um. How are you? How I am. Well, Scratch got his own at last, hey? So I'm dull. Cold, innit? Ha <laughs> ha. Seasonable for Christmas time. You're not a skater, I suppose. No, no, something else to think of. Good morning. Scrooge was at first inclined to be surprised that the spirit should attach importance to conversations apparently so trivial. But feeling assured that they must have some hidden purpose, he set himself to consider what it was likely to be. They could scarcely be supposed to have any bearing on the death of Jacob, his old partner, for that was past, and the ghost's province was the future. Nor could he think of anyone immediately connected with himself to whom he could apply them. But nothing doubting that to whomsoever they applied, they had some latent moral to his own improvement, he resolved to treasure up every word he heard, and everything he saw, 
and especially to observe the shadow of himself when it appeared. For he had an expectation that the conduct of his future self would give him the clue he missed, and would render the solution of these riddles easy. He looked about in that very place for his own image, but another man stood in his accustomed corner, and though the clock pointed to his usual time of day for being there, he saw no likeness of himself among the multitudes that poured through the porch. It gave him little surprise, however, for he had been revolving in his mind a change of life, and thought, and hoped, he saw his newborn resolutions carried out in this. Quiet and dark, beside him stood the phantom, with its outstretched hand. When he roused himself from his thoughtful quest, he fancied from the turn of the hand, and its situation in reference to himself, that the unseen eyes were looking at him keenly. It made him shudder, and feel very cold. They left the busy scene, and went into an obscure part of the town, where Scrooge had never penetrated before, although he recognized its situation and its bad repute. The ways were foul and narrow, the shops and houses wretched, the people half-naked, drunken, slipshod, ugly. Alleys and archways, like so many cesspools, disgorged their offenses of smell and dirt and life upon the straggling streets, and the whole quarter reeked with crime, with filth and misery. Far in this den of infamous resort, there was a low-browed, beetling shop, below a penthouse roof, where iron, old rags, bottles, bones, and greasy offal were brought. Upon the floor within were piled up heaps of rusty keys, nails, chains, hinges, files, scales, weights, and refuse iron of all kinds. Secrets that few would like to scrutinize were bred and hidden in the mountains of unseemly rags, masses of corrupted fat, and sepulchres of bone. Sitting in among the wares he dealt in by a charcoal stove made of old bricks was a grey-haired rascal, nearly seventy years of age, who had screened himself from the cold air without by a frowsy curtain of miscellaneous tatters, hung upon a line, and smoked his pipe in all the luxury of calm refinement. Scrooge and the Phantom came into the presence of this man, just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop. But she had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too, and she was closely followed by a man in faded black, who was no less startled by the sight of them than they had been upon the recognition of each other. After a short period of blank astonishment in which the old man with the pipe had joined them, they all three burst into a laugh. Let the charwoman alone to be the first. Let the laundress alone to be the second. And let the undertaker's man alone to be the third. Look here, old Joe. Here's a chance. If we haven't all three met here without meaning it. You couldn't have met in a better place. Come into the parlour. You were made free of it long ago, you know. The other two ain't strangers. Stop till I shut the door of the shop. Ah, how it screaks. There ain't such a rusty bit of metal in the place as its own hinges, I believe. And I'm sure there's no such old bones here as mine. <laughs> uh, we're all suitable to our calling. We're well matched. Come into the parlour. Come into the parlour. What odds, then? What odds, Mrs Dilber? Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did. That's true indeed. No man more so. Why, then, don't stand staring as if you was afraid, woman. Who's the wiser? 
We're not going to pick holes in each other's coats, I suppose. No, indeed. I should hope not. Very well, then. That's enough. Who's the worse for the loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. No, indeed. If he wanted to keep him after he was dead, a wicked old screw, why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have had somebody to look after him when he was struck with death, instead of lying gasping out his last there, alone, by himself. It's the truest word that ever was spoke. It's a judgement on him. I wish it was a little heavier judgement. And it should have been, you may depend on it, if I could have laid my hands on anything else. Open that bundle, old Joe, and let me know the value of it. Speak out plain. I'm not afraid to be the first, nor afraid for them to see it. We know pretty well that we were helping ourselves before we met here, I believe. It's no sin. Open the bundle, Joe. <laughs> Nothing doing. Open mine first, Joe. Let's see, what have we got here? Hmm, a CO2, a pencil case, a pair of sleeve buttons, and a brooch of no great value. Seems that's all. That's your account, and I wouldn't give another sixpence if I was to be boiled for not doing it. Who's next? I'll go. I got me some fine sheets and towels, a little wearing apparel, two old-fashioned silver teaspoons, a pair of sugar tongs and a few boots. I always give too much to ladies. It's a weakness of mine and that's the way I ruin myself. That's your account. If you asked me for another penny and made it an open question, I'd repent of being so liberal and knock off half a crown. And now undo my bundle, Joe. What do you call this? Bed curtains? Too right. Ha! Bed curtains! <laughs> you don't mean to say you took them down, rings and all, with him lying there? Yes, I do. Why not? You were born to make your fortune, and you'll certainly do it. I certainly shan't hold my hand when I can get anything in it by reaching out. For the sake of such a man as he was, I promise you, Joe... Don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. His blankets? Who else's do you think? He isn't likely to take cold without them, I dare say. I hope he didn't die of anything catching, eh? <laughs> Don't you be afraid of that. I ain't so fond of his company that I'd loiter about him for such things if he did. Oh, you may look through that shirt till your eyes ache. But you won't find a hole in it, nor a threadbare place. It's the best he had, and a fine one, too. They'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me. What do you call wasting of it? Putting it on him to be buried in, for sure. <laughs> Somebody was fool enough to do it, but I took it off again. If calico ain't good enough for such a purpose, it isn't good enough for anything. It's quite as becoming to the body. He can't look uglier than he did in that one. Right, then. Here's what's yours. <laughs> this is the end of it, you see. He frightened everyone away from him when he was alive to profit us when he was dead. <laughs> Spirit, I see, I see. The case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now. Merciful heaven, what is this? 
He recoiled in terror, for the scene had changed, and now he almost touched a bed. A bare, uncurtained bed, on which, beneath a ragged sheet, there lay a something covered up, which, though it was silent, announced itself in awful language. The room was very dark, too dark to be observed with any accuracy. Though Scrooge glanced round it in obedience to a secret impulse, anxious to know what kind of room it was. A pale light, rising in the outer air, fell straight upon the bed, and on it, plundered and bereft, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of a man. Scrooge glanced toward the phantom. Its steady hand was pointed to the head. The cover was so carelessly adjusted that the slightest raising of it, the motion of a finger upon Scrooge's part, would have disclosed the face. He thought of it, felt how easy it would be to do, and longed to do it, but had no more power to withdraw the veil than to dismiss the spectre at his side. The spectre's voice, pronouncing these words in Scrooge's ear, turned his blood to ice in his very veins. He thought, if this man could be raised up now, what would be his foremost thoughts? Avarice? Hard-dealing? Griping cares? They had brought him to a rich end, truly. He lay in the dark, empty house, with not a man, a woman, or a child, to say that he was kind to me in this or that. Or for the memory of one kind word, I will be kind to him. A cat was tearing at the door, and there was a sound of gnawing rats beneath the hearthstone. What they wanted in the room of death, and why they were so restless and disturbed, Scrooge did not dare to think. Spirit, this is a fearful place. In leaving it, I shall not leave its lesson. Trust me. Let us go. Look beneath the cover. I understand you, and I would do it if I could, but I have not the power, spirit. I have not the power. If there is any person in the town who feels emotion caused by this man's death, show that person to me, spirit. I beseech you. The phantom spread its dark robe before him for a moment, like a wing, and withdrawing it, revealed a room by daylight, where a mother and her child were. She was expecting someone, and with anxious eagerness, for she walked up and down the room, started at every sound, looked out from the window, glanced at the clock, tried, but in vain, to work with a needle, and could hardly bear the voices of the children in their play. 
At length, the long-expected knock was heard. She hurried to the door and met her husband, a man whose face was careworn and depressed, though he was young. There was a remarkable expression in it now, a kind of serious delight of which he felt ashamed and which he struggled to repress. He sat down to the dinner they had been boarding for him by the fire. What news, my love? Is it good or bad? Bad. We are quite ruined. No. Uh, There is hope yet, Caroline. If he relents, there is. Nothing is past hope if such a miracle has happened. He is past relenting. He is dead. Oh, thank God. Forgive me for saying so, but... What the half-drunken woman whom I told you of last night said to me when I tried to see him and obtain a week's delay, and what I thought was a mere excuse to avoid me, turns out to have been quite true. He was not only very ill, but dying then. To whom will our debt be transferred? I don't know. But before that time, we shall be ready with the money. And even though we were not, it would be a bad fortune indeed to find so merciless a creditor in his successor. We may sleep tonight with light hearts, Caroline. Spirit, let me see some tenderness connected with a death, or that dark chamber, spirit, which we left just now, will be forever present to me. The ghost conducted him through several streets familiar to his feet, and as they went along, Scrooge looked here and there to find himself, but nowhere was he to be seen. They entered poor Bob Cratchit's house, the dwelling he had visited before and found the mother and the children seated round the fire. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. The colour hurts my eyes. They're better now again. It makes them weak by candlelight. And I wouldn't show weak eyes to your father when he comes home for the world. It must be near his time. Past it, rather. I think he's walked a little slow with any use these last few evenings, Mother. I have known him walk with... I have known him walk with Tiny Tim upon his shoulder very fast indeed. And so have I, often. And so have I. Me too. Me too. But he was very light to carry. And his father loved him so much that it was no trouble. No trouble. And there is your father. At the door. Hello, my lovelies. My, my, how sober you all look. Cheer up, then. Don't mind it, father. Don't be grieved. I'm all right, child. Just the cold in my eyes. That's all. Mrs Cratchit, Martha, excellent work. You should be done long before... Long before Sunday comes round. Sunday? You went today, then, Robert? Yes, my dear. I wish you could have gone. It would have done you good to see how green a place it was. But you'll see it often. I promised him that I would walk there on a... On a Sunday. (laughs) My little... Little child. My little child. (laughs) I did see... I did see Mr. Scrooge's nephew today. Scarcely seen him but once before. He met me in the street today, and seeing that I looked a little... 
just a little down, you know. He asked me what had happened to distress me, on which, for well, he is the pleasantest spoken gentleman you ever heard, I told him. I am heartily sorry for it, Mr. Cratchit, he said, and heartily sorry for your good wife. By the boy, how he ever knew that, I don't know. Knew what, my dear? Why, that you were a good wife? Everybody knows that. Very well observed, my boy. I hope they do. Heartly sorry, he said, for your good wife. I can be of service to you in any way, he said, giving me his card. That's where I live. Pray come to me. Now, it wasn't for the sake of anything he might be able to do for us, so much as for his kind way, that this was quite delightful. It really seemed as if he'd known our tiny Tim and felt with us. I'm sure he's a good soul. You would be sure of it, my dear, if you saw and spoke to him. I shouldn't be at all surprised, Mark, what I say, if he got Peter a better situation. Only hear that, Peter. Oh, and then Peter will be keeping company with someone and setting up for himself. Get along with you. It's just as likely as not, one of these days. Oh, there's plenty of time for that, my dear. But however and whenever we part from one another... I am sure we shall none of us forget poor Tiny Tim, shall we? Or this first parting that there was among us. Never, Father. Never, Father. Never, Father. And I know, I know, my dears, that when we recollect how patient and how mild he was, although he was a little, little child, we shall not quarrel easily among ourselves and forget poor Tiny Tim in doing it. No, never, Father. No, never, Father. No, never, Father. I am very happy. I am very happy indeed. Spectre, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I know not how. Tell me what man that was whom we saw lying dead. The ghost of Christmas yet to come conveyed him as before, though at a different time, he thought. Indeed, there seemed no order in these latter visions, save that they were in the future. Into the resorts of businessmen but showed him not himself. Indeed, the spirit did not stay for anything, but went straight on, as to the end just now desired. Spirit, wait! This corpse, through which we hurry now, is where my place of occupation is and has been for a length of time. I see the house. Let me behold what I shall be in days to come. What you seek is not there. The house is yonder. Why do you point away? What you seek is not there. Scrooge hastened to the window of his office and looked in. It was an office still, but not his. The furniture was not the same, and the figure in the chair was not himself. The phantom pointed as before. He joined it once again and wondering why and whither he had gone, accompanied it until they reached an iron gate. He paused to look round before entering. A churchyard. Here, then, the wretched man whose name he had now to learn lay underneath the ground. It was a worthy place, walled in by houses, overrun by grass and weeds, the growth of vegetation's death, not life, choked up with too much burying, fat with repleted appetite. A worthy place indeed. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. 
Scrooge advanced towards it, trembling. The phantom was exactly as it had been, but Scrooge dreaded that he saw new meaning in its solemn shape. Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they shadows of things that may be only? Look, Ebenezer Scrooge. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends, to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and, following the finger, read upon the stone of the neglectful grave his own name. Ebenezer Scrooge. Am I that man who lay upon the bed? You have said... No, spirit! Oh no! No! Spirit, hear me! I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been but for this intercourse. Why show me this if I have passed all hope? Good spirit, your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. I will honour Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all a year. I will live in the past, the present and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. In his agony, he caught the spectral hand. It sought to free itself, but he was strong in his entreaty and attained it. The spirit, stronger yet, repulsed him. Holding up his hands in a last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed and dwindled down into a bedpost. Yes, and the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own. The room was his own. Best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own, to make amends in. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Jacob Marley, God, Heaven and the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, on my knees. They are not torn down. They are not torn down, rings and all. They are here. I am here. The shadows of the things that would have been may be dispelled. They will be. I know they will. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. A Merry Christmas to everybody! A Happy New Year to all the world! <laughs> There's the saucepan that the gruel was in. There's the door by which the ghost of Jacob Marley entered. There's the corner where the ghost of Christmas present sat. There's the window where I saw the wandering spirits. It's all right. It's all true. It all happened. I don't know what day of month it is. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know anything. I'm quite a baby. Never mind. I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. <laughs> What's today? Eh? What's today, my fine fellow? 
Today? Why Christmas Day? It's Christmas Day! I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night. They can do anything they like. Of course they can. Of course they can. Hello, my fine fellow. Yeah? Do you know the porterers in the next street but one at the corner? I should hope I did. An intelligent boy. A remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? Not the little prize turkey. The big one. What? The one as big as me? Oh, what a delightful boy. It's a pleasure to talk to him. Yes, my buck. It's hanging there now. Is it? Go and buy it. Are you kidding me? No, no. I am in earnest. Go and buy it and tell them to bring it here that I may give them the direction where to take it. Come back with the man and I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in less than five minutes and I'll give you half a crown. Yes, sir. I'll send it to Bob Cratchits. He shan't know who sends it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. Joe Miller never made such a joke as sending it to Bob's will be. The hand in which he wrote the address was not a steady one, but write it he did, somehow, and went downstairs to open the street door, ready for the coming of the poterer's man. As he stood there, waiting his arrival, the knocker caught his eye. I shall love it as long as I live. I scarcely ever looked at it before. What an honest expression it has on its face. It's a wonderful knocker. Here's the turkey. Hello, how are you? Merry Christmas! Why, it's impossible to carry that to Camden Town. You must have a cab. <laughs> the chuckle with which he said this, and the chuckle with which he paid for the turkey, and the chuckle with which he paid for the cab, and the chuckle with which he recompensed the boy, were only to be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat down breathless in his chair again, and chuckled till he cried. Shaving was not an easy task, for his hand continued to shake very much, and shaving requires attention, even when you don't dance while you're at it. But if he had cut the end of his nose off, he would have put a piece of sticking plaster over it and been quite satisfied. He dressed himself all in his best, and at last he got out into the streets. The people were by this time pouring forth, as he had seen them with the ghost of Christmas present, and walking with his hands behind him, Scrooge regarded everyone with a delighted smile. He looked so irresistibly pleasant, in a word, that three or four good-humoured fellows said, Good morning, sir, and Merry Christmas to you. And Scrooge said often afterwards that of all the blithe sounds he had ever heard, those were the blithest in his ears. He had not gone far when, coming on towards him, he beheld the portly gentleman, who had walked into his counting-house the day before and said, Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. It sent a pang across his heart to think how this old gentleman would look upon him when they met, but he knew what path lay straight before him, and he took it. My dear sir, how do you do? I hope you succeeded yesterday. It was very kind of you. A Merry Christmas to you, sir. Mr. Scrooge? Yes, that is my name and I fear it may not be pleasant to you. Allow me to ask your pardon, and will you have the goodness to accept my... Oh, Lord bless me! My dear Mr. Scrooge, are you serious? If you please, not a farthing less. A great many back payments are included in it, I assure you. Will you do me that favour? Uh, my, my dear sir, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to say to such munificence. Don't say anything, please. Come and see me. Will you come and see me? <laughs> oh, we will. Thank you. I am much obliged to you. 
I thank you 50 times. Bless you. He went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything, could give him so much happiness. In the afternoon, he turned his steps towards his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock. But he made a dash and did it. Is your master at home, my dear? Oh, yes, sir. Where is he, my love? He's in the dining room, sir, along with mistress. I'll show you upstairs, if you please. Thank you. He knows me. I'll go in here, my dear. He turned it gently and sidled his face in round the door. They were looking at the table, which was spread out in great array, for these young housekeepers are always nervous on such points and like to see that everything is right. Fred! Why, bless my soul! Who's that? It's I, your Uncle Scrooge. I've come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? Let him in. It is a mercy he didn't shake his arm off. He was at home in five minutes. Nothing could be heartier. His niece looked just the same. So did Topper when he came. So did the plump sister when she came. So did everyone when they came. Wonderful party. Wonderful games. Wonderful unity. Wonderful happiness. But he was early at the office the next morning. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late, that was the thing that he had set his heart upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past. No Bob. He was full eighteen minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come into the tank. His hat was off before he opened the door, his comforter too. He was on his stool in the jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he had been trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello. What do you mean by coming here at this time of day? I'm very sorry, sir. I am behind my time. You are? Yes, I think you are. Step this way, if you please. It's only once a year, sir. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Now, I'll tell you what, my friend. I am not going to stand this sort of thing any longer, and therefore... And therefore, I'm about to raise your salary. I... I... Mr Scrooge, I... Sir, I... A Merry Christmas, Bob! A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavour to assist your struggling family, and we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking Bishop Bob. Make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew. Or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them, for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good, at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset. 
and knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes in grins, as have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards, and it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. God bless us, everyone. Ah, I love this book so much, and this audio drama just brought it to life in a whole new way. Uh, I'm so, so proud of the uh, creation that we have created here with A Christmas Carol. I hope you have enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed putting it together for you. Again, this was all in uh, benefit of Operation Christmas Child. All proceeds from the sale of the full audiobook, uh, audio drama, go to Operation Christmas Child. So make sure that you go and uh, either purchase the audiobook once it's live, or if you want to pre-order it, you can go to Operation Christmas Child's website and donate, and then send me an email with the, the receipt of your donation to an otherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com and I will put you on the list and get you that free full version of this audio drama once it is ready. So that's kind of the, the way we do it around here because I, I want to provide free audiobooks because I know a lot of people you, know, you can't afford them so that's kind of the whole um, point here is to provide them for you but if you have you know just a couple bucks that you want to throw to Operation Christmas Child and help some kids around the world my way of saying thank you is providing the, the full unabridged version of a Christmas Carol audio drama. As we draw near to the end of this year, um, I just want to take a, a moment here and just say a huge special thank you to every single person who's listened. It is so cool to see the Another World Audiobooks family growing. Um, it's just so awesome to just know that we're, we're connecting with people all around the world who just love audiobooks and, and love these stories. It's been a blast and I'm just so happy to have you along for the ride. Um, so, I, yeah, I think we'll go ahead and wrap things up here for today. Um, hopefully get you back to your family, hopefully a warm fire, some great food, and celebrating this wonderful holiday. Christmas is pretty awesome, isn't it? It's probably one of my favorite seasons. Growing up, um, we had a nativity scene that me and my siblings loved to set up every year. There was Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, and little baby Jesus in his manger cradle. And it, when you think about it, the, the story of Jesus, it's, it's one of the greatest stories ever told. Over 2,000 years after he was born, people are still talking about him. The world still stops on this day to remember and celebrate his birth. So this Christmas, enjoy the presents, the time off from work, enjoy the family and the lights, but don't forget the real reason we celebrate this holiday. Jesus Christ came to earth to live a sinless, perfect life so that he could take the punishment for our sins on himself and offer you and me eternal life with him in heaven. Now, that's something we're celebrating. I want to read you something from the best book ever. For we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating others. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. From everyone here at Another World Audiobooks, I just want to say, Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to A Christmas Carol, an audio drama, a production of Another World Audiobooks, a project in benefit of Operation Christmas Child. The incredible voice actors that you heard throughout this production graciously volunteered their time and talent. In no particular order, Liesel Hall as Martha Cratchit, Roy Clark as the Ghost of Christmas Future, The Undertaker and Business Person 2, Sam Collins as Scrooge and Young Scrooge, Laura Robbins as The Door Girl, Young Cratchit No. 2 and Tiny Tim, Rebecca Hunt as Belle and Mrs. Cratchit, Carl Nordman as Jacob Marley, Second Merchant and Mr. Poole, Shelley Moore as Young Caroler, Alex Legacy as Old Joe and the Debtor, Romy Santosh as Fred's Wife, Jane Wing as the Charwoman, Thomas Reiser as Nephew Fred and Fezziwig, Amanda Bourne as Caroline, Jordan Semro as Belle's husband and third merchant, Len Clark as Mrs. Dilber, Young Cratchit No. 1, and Peter Cratchit, Beth Highland as the plump sister, Melissa Fry as Fan and the boy on the street, Harry Jeppert as the ghost of Christmas Present and Business Person 1, Jared Byron Green as the great fat merchant and topper, Dylan M. Clark as Mr. Walpole, Nikki Brown as the ghost of Christmas Past, and Jazz Wilson as Bob Cratchit. And me, Brady Smith, as your narrator, or Charles Dickens, whichever you prefer. For more free awesome audiobooks, go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com, or simply search Another World Audiobooks on your favorite podcast player. We're also on YouTube, just search Another World Audiobooks. A Merry Christmas to you and your family. May the light of Jesus' love fill your heart and transform your life. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of Another World Audiobooks. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.